Today we are going to be continuing in our series in Mark's gospel. We're going to be, actually we're going to be in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12 today. Um, And so if you would listen uh, to God's word. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and he moved away to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They seized him, they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, some of them they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come. He will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage? Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and that is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, and so they left and went away. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Relationships are a part of life, right? I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty common. That's pretty understandable. Relationships are a part of life, right? Relationships are even biblical because from the very beginning of creation in Genesis to the very end of the Bible in Revelation, I mean, one thing is for sure, we were created to be in relationship, Even in eternity, we will be in relationship with our Creator. That's a good thing. Because relationships are are essential to life. They bring us much joy and and happiness. And in some sense, they they bring completeness to us. We we often enjoy some of the greater moments of life with, with others. But, but, if we're honest, right, relationships, they can be hard right? Relationships can be pretty difficult sometimes, right? Um, They can try your patience. They can test your love, right? They can be very challenging. I mean, you know, just for example, like um, people who are married, those relationships can sometimes be very challenging. Parents with children, those relationships can be sometimes very tricky, right? Friendships can be disappointing. Coworkers can be annoying. I mean, of course, not here at Union Church, but you know, coworkers can be annoying, 
And the reason I say all of this today is because the parable that we just read from Mark chapter 12, I mean, it's about relationships. It's about the most important relationship there is in all of life, the relationship between God and His people. And so as we look at this parable today, there are three aspects of relationships that I want us to kind of drill into this morning. And the first is this. First, we're going to look at our relationship with God and how um, we reject God. We have enmity toward God. Secondly, we're going to look at God's patient and consistent and forbearing and undying love for us. And finally, we are going to look at Jesus, who is the foundation or who is the cornerstone of our lives. All right, that's what we're going to do this morning. Our rejection, God's love, Christ as the cornerstone. So first, our rejection of God. The first verse in the the text today starts, it says, he began to speak to them in parables. He began to speak to them in parables. Who is the them? Who is he speaking to? Well, the them is the the religious leaders, right? The same people that Jesus was, was talking to last week, you know, at the temple. It's the same people. And um, so these are the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, the elders of the people. These were the men who had a problem with Jesus' authority and ultimately rejected him, ultimately crucified him. And it's interesting, it's actually pretty fascinating to me when you think about the grand plan of God, you notice that it's often the lowly of life um, who, who don't reject God, and it's like the elite who do reject God. I mean, that's sort of an interesting thing we, we sometimes see in Scripture. You ever think about that? I mean, it's, you know, the scoundrels, the thieves, the prostitutes, right? It's not the poor, oftentimes, who reject Jesus, but it's the, it's the educated, the prestigious, the elite, right? They reject Jesus. And it tells you something, I think it tells you something implicitly about the human heart. In the gospel accounts, those people who resonate with and, and embrace Jesus, they, they are, for the most part, they're the ones who, who know their deep need for Jesus, their deep need for a Savior. They're poor, they're distressed, they're lonely. They need help. But those who are, quote unquote, you know, those who, quote unquote, have made it in life, right? Been really successful in life, the educated, the elite, those with status, those with power. I mean, they seem to have the most difficulty in understanding and embracing the gospel message. Now, the parable here is about, it's really about, I said it's about relationships, so it's really about the relationship of God and His people Israel, the relationship with God and Israel. Um, And it's directed, the parable is directed to the elite, to those with status and power, those religious leaders. And Jesus explains the parable. He explains about the vineyard. He gives a really detailed description of it, right? The man, the man has a piece of land. He puts up a fence around it. 
He digs a pit for a wine press. He builds a tower for the workers to live in. And then he leases the vineyard out to some tenants to, to keep it. And he moves away. Now, you'd call this like a absentee landlordism, I guess. Um, this, was, this was common in Galilee at the time of Jesus, uh, that, that someone would, would own a farm but might live somewhere else and would have sort of middlemen to manage the workers and to manage the harvest. And so that's what Jesus is explaining here in, in his description. And it's a parable that really draws from the everyday um, life of, of what it would be like to live in Galilee. This was a, a parable that was very understandable for Mark's listeners because they would, they would have had this common experience of sort of rural life in Galilee. And, and it really helps us this morning to understand the, the parable with that background. And the religious leaders, they too would have understood this context. It was very relatable. It was very understandable, this, this kind of analogy or parable of the vineyard. Now, behind this parable, there's actually an allusion to what is called the song of the vineyard. It's found in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I'm just going to read a little part of that. But, but in Isaiah 5, it says, Let me sing a song to my beloved, a song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice grapes. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So this passage in Isaiah, it's also talking about that relationship between God and his people, Israel. God's using the vineyard as a metaphor for God's people. And, and Jesus is taking this, he's taking this kind of story or image from Isaiah chapter 5, and he's using it as a, a parable now, a very understandable and relatable parable here as he speaks to the religious leaders. And they, they pick up on this. They, they understand this, right? And Jesus takes this and he, he runs with it. He's saying the vineyard is basically God's people. The vineyard is God's people. And where God continually loves and cares for his people, we see that Israel, his people, they continually and consistently are ungrateful to God and reject God. And so, in other words, the, the relationship between God and his people is, is a relationship with some friction. It's a relationship with some difficulty and tension in it. And Jesus is trying to make the point that the people of God, they are rebellious, and the vineyard, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. And so Jesus tells this parable to the religious leaders. He's using this same imagery from Isaiah. And he's basically saying that the man in the story, the man who made the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard, well, um, you know, the, the man is God. And then the tenants in the story, they're... They're the religious leaders, right? They're the, um, the religious leaders, the, the, the servants that the man sends to, to the vineyard. They're the prophets, right? And, and so that's kind of how he explains this. And, and then 
if you understand this parable in this context and, and you see this relationship between God and his people of Israel, you see this is a very strained, a very tumultuous relationship. God is dealing with ineffective and insubordinate tenants in his vineyard. They, they are selfish. They want to keep all of the benefits of the vineyard for themselves. And then the passage tells us in verse 2, it says, well, because of this, a harvest time, the man sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the, some of the fruit of the vineyard, right? So, so the man, God, sent some servants, God sent some prophets to, to, the, to the tenants, the religious leaders, to collect some fruit. Now, what did the tenants do to the servant? Well, we see in verse 3, they seized him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And then God sent another servant. Verse 4, they struck this man in the head. They treated him shamefully. And then the man sends a third servant. In verse 5, what did they do? This one they killed. And he sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others of them they killed. So the point here, there's kind of a the point is that there's sort of an escalation going on, to put it mildly, kind of an intensif- intensification going on. With every servant, there is a progressively worsening treatment of the servant who was sent, right? And so the point and the reference is clearly to the religious leaders, right? And, and it's showing us something about the human condition, the human heart that is related to everyone, right? That, that the heart of the tenants or the heart of, of the religious leaders, right? The, 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 it, it, in, in the heart of the religious leaders, we see the heart of all mankind. Another way to put it is that there's a little bit of Pharisee in every single one of us, right? You might not like to hear that, but there's a little bit of religious leader within every single one of us, a little bit of self-righteousness in every single one of us. There's a little bit of a desire within every single one of us to be autonomous and to reject the Lord. Let's just kind of put in like really wide open terms here with the, with the, the tenants, the religious leaders. And the point is that through this continual rejection of every prophet who is sent, this intensification, the point is Mark is showing us the natural inclination of the heart of man, the natural enmity within every one of us toward the Lord. I mean, you think about it in your own life. At times, is this how, is this how you relate to the Lord, right? At times, you think, well, God's not fair. God doesn't understand Right, or God wants a lot from me, but I'm not seeing, you know, much in return. Or you think about, you know, you know, God wants to, you know, demand so much of me in terms of, you know, how I use my money or, you know, how I treat my enemies. God's standards are too high. It's unreasonable. You know, sometimes we think God hasn't done enough for us, while, while the reality is He's done more than we could ever ask or imagine. And one thing we need to, to recognize is no matter, no matter how mature we may be as, 
as Christians, as believers in Jesus, no matter how long we may have been walking with the Lord, right? There's, there's still like a little bit of this Pharisee heart within every single one of us, right? You know, that's going to be pushing back against the Lord. One commentator has written about this passage. He says, what the history of Israel is, is it is a continual rebellion against God. I mean, that speaks something about the human heart, right? The state of our hearts, the enmity toward God. That's our condition in sin. That remnant remains. And so we have this enmity toward God. That's the first point. And with that background in mind, we see in our second point today, that God has patient love for us. He has patient love for us. To these people who reject God continually, these tenants, these religious leaders, we also see the relentless patient love of God. Now understand this. I mean, did you ever wonder with this passage, did you ever wonder why the man continually sends servants to the vineyard, right? I mean, there's this increasing intensity of rejection against the service, but the man just keeps sending servants, right? There's violence. Some of them are even being killed, but he keeps sending them. Why, why are so many servants sent to the tenants? We're told in verse 5, so many were sent. Some were beaten. Others were killed. It's almost as if it's almost as if the man is a little slow, you know, or we said the man kind of equates to God. It's almost like God's a little slow here, like God's not, God's not getting it here, right? He keeps sending them, and there's all this violence done toward them. Why doesn't he get it over and over again? He sends the servant, or he sends the prophets, and every time they are rejected, beaten, treated shamefully, even killed. Why is it that God doesn't seem to get it? Why doesn't he stop? Why doesn't he take a different course of action? Well, the point is that God sending servant after servant, right, shows us that, I mean, God, God does understand what's going on here. He's not slow. He's not foolish. But rather, God is patient. God is not giving up on his people. You see that? Over and over again. He's reaching out. Over and over again, he's pursuing you. He's never giving up on you. Even when you reject him, he is coming after you like the hound of heaven, right? He's reaching out with the love that is from everlasting to everlasting. It's not that he's slow. It's not that he's foolish. He's pursuing you by his very word. That's remarkable. That's remarkable, isn't it? It's wonderful, isn't it? So It's so it's so different than the way that we operate. I mean, have you ever like taught someone something or maybe tutored someone, maybe your child or someone just needed some help in a school subject and like you're teaching them this, this subject and they, you know, it's like you're saying it, you're explaining it and it's like going in one ear and out the other and like they just don't get it and it's just it's like, unless you're really patient, I mean, it's sort of exasperating. You just want to throw your hands up, you know, like, oh, I'm done with this, right? Or maybe if you've like coached kids in sports, you know, you're teaching them how to shoot a basketball and like they just don't have any of the athletic ability to do it. And you're just like, oh, I'm going to pull my hair out. Like it's a waste of time, right? But imagine God, right? We reject him. 
We show him enmity. But he doesn't give up on us. He doesn't throw his hands up. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He pursues us over and over and over again. There's a book, it's titled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. Anybody know that one? A few of y'all? Yeah, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And it's really a quite fascinating book. Butterfield was a tenured English literature professor at Syracuse University in New York State. She was very successful in her academic career, um, member of prestigious boards, well-respected at her university, well-respected in her community. And it's interesting that the book is basically a testimony of how she came to believe on Jesus Christ. And it's in, the interesting point is not, not just that she was successful in her academic career, but that Rosaria Butterfield was also a committed and, and practicing lesbian. And so she tells this story about how this Presbyterian pastor, Pastor Ken, how he reached out to her and he continually pursued her, and he loved her. In the beginning of the book, she says that the way she got introduced to this pastor was that um, every day she got, she got mail, like letters in the mail, and it probably seemed kind of old-fashioned now, but she got letters in the mail, and so every day she got these letters in the mail, and so she, she had this system that she had two piles of mail on her desk, and the one pile was hate mail. And so letters that she got, they were written by people that did not approve of her, that didn't approve of her lifestyle or homosexuality or, uh, you know, uh, and whatnot. You know, she put those letters in the hate mail pile. And then the other pile of mail on her desk was the fan mail pile. So people that wrote her letters, commending her, you know, encouraging her, celebrating the things she was doing. Well, she kept, she put those in the fan mail pile, right? So she kind of kept a neat desk with her two piles of, of mail. And then that was all a sort of neat and tidy way to handle her mail until she got this letter from Pastor Ken. And she got this letter from Pastor Ken and um, the letter essentially questioned Rosaria's presuppositions. You know, and he just said, like, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? How do you know that what you say is correct? And she said that for weeks, she didn't know what to do with this letter from Pastor Ken. She didn't know if it was, couldn't figure out if it was hate mail or if it was fan mail. And so she had this really organized desk, but she has one letter. She couldn't figure out what to do with it. And she said, you know, she, she'd crumple it up and throw it in the trash can and then she'd get it back out and uncrumple it. And it just kind of fascinated her until finally she gave a call to Pastor Ken and it was the start of a relationship. And it wasn't. It wasn't the point where she was converted like right in that moment, no. But, but Pastor Ken was patient. And he continually pursued her. He would invite her over for dinner. They would have conversations. He would listen to her thoughts. He would listen to her questions. He was kind to her. And, and you have to realize for this woman, this woman, um, when, when she really embraced and believed on Jesus Christ, I mean, it destroyed her worldview, right? Her relationships, many relationships were ended. Her career, 
Her career was shattered. And it really gave meaning to, you know, what Jesus says. You know, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross. Right? Take up your cross. I mean, that's, that's kind of spoke to me in that point of the book. But, but the point I'm trying to make is, is it wasn't an instantaneous conversion for Rosaria Butterfield. Rather, it was this continuous, persistent love of God through this pastor, Pastor Ken, who was reaching out, who was building a relationship with her. And even when they wouldn't talk for a couple of months, you know, Pastor Ken would give her a call or shoot her an email or send her a note. And it was that consistent, persistent, long-suffering love that made the difference. Isn't that wonderful? That even though we reject the Lord, He continues to pursue us, continues to send those servants. That, isn't it wonderful that His love is patient and His love is active? And we see in this passage, not only are there many servants that are sent, but you have to ask the question here, like, after all these servants have been sent and they've been beaten and they've been treated shamefully, they've been sent, sent away empty-handed and some of them have even been killed, what father in his right mind would then say, well, now I'll send my son, right? Father in his right I mean, you know, any of us, I mean, if, if we had a business and we had workers getting killed at the business, I mean, we wouldn't send our son. We'd be saying, son, stay away from there, right? You stay home, you stay safe. But God doesn't think like that. And in verse six, we see, we see it says he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, he will, or they will re respect my son. They will respect my son. It's interesting. Verse six tells us the son is unique. This son is one of a kind. I mean, before him, all the servants, I mean, they were hired help, right? But the son is an heir to the vineyard. Servants were forerunners. The son is ultimate. And God, the owner of the vineyard, he says, this is my beloved. He says here in this translation, son whom he loved, but it, it literally is, this is his beloved son, right? That phrase is used only two other times in the gospel of Mark. Once at Jesus' baptism and once at Jesus' transfiguration. And now here again in the parable of the tenants. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's like, clearly, he's talking about the son is Jesus Christ. I mean, the, the religious leaders, they, they, would, they would have clearly understood who he's talking about here. You know, I'm going to send my beloved son. They'll respect my son, this unique and only son that the owner sends to the tenants. And the, and the point, you know, we need to realize is this, brothers and sisters, God is pursuing you in His Son, His beloved Son. Whether you believe the gospel or not, whether you still need some encouragement and sustenance in your faith, right? God is still pursuing you in His Son, His beloved Son. Now, when Jesus talked in parables, it was really a judgment. It was really a dividing word. His parables had a winnowing effect. They, they, they divided those who, you know, 
those who embraced him from those who rejected him, those who believed on him from those who doubted him, right? The, the parables had really God's word in general as a, it has a winnowing effect. And he comes to us in the form of a parable. I mean, even today, right? As you hear these words of, of God's word, it has a winnowing effect even among us. And, and so we know from the story that it's purpose, right? The tenants, they, they're the religious leaders. And we know they conspire to get rid of to get rid of Jesus, right? They conspire to kill Jesus. And if you look at verses seven and eight, we know the Pharisees, the, the Pharisee heart rejection, right? Says, this is the thinking of the religious leaders. They say to one another, this is the heir, right? Let's kill him. And the inheritance, it'll all be ours. I mean, they want to gain money and status and power and control, right? And, um, and so verse eight, they, they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. And then Jesus talks about what the vineyard owner is going to do, right? What the vineyard owner is going to do. He's, he will come to them and he is going to destroy the tenants. It's no light point. It's no light point that when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, it has this dividing effect. And for those who reject it, there is judgment to come. Pharisees, they knew the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament very well. And this parable is coming to them and it's saying, when you reject me, then the owner is going to come. He's going to destroy the tenants. The application, ultimately, the application is that even though we have enmity toward God, brothers and sisters, God's love is continually pursuing you in His Son. And the question this morning is this, how will you respond? How will you respond? Are you coming to learn Jesus' to learn and to love Jesus Christ even more and more? Or are you growing stagnant and stale and rejecting Jesus Christ? I mean, we know where the religious leaders stand, but how about you? Where do you stand? What is your response? So we have enmity toward God. God's love continually pursues us in his son. And finally today, we're going to look at Jesus as the foundation for our faith. The parable concludes with this quote. It's from Psalm 118, verse 34. I'm sorry, Psalm 118, verse 23. And and it says this. It says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. In other words, Jesus changes, he changes the the metaphor here from, uh, from Israel being a vineyard to being a building. You know, from the workers, the tenants being farmers to being builders. And it says here, the builders have rejected the cornerstone. Now, what's the cornerstone? We might not think so much about cornerstones today. 
in construction, but at least back in that day, the cornerstone was the first stone laid in the construction of, of a building. And so it was like the foundation of the foundation. And so the cornerstone had to be just so, just right. Its dimensions had to be perfect. It had to be laid in just such a way that it was perfectly plumb, perfectly straight, perfectly level, because everything else was going to be built upon and based upon the cornerstone, right? If the cornerstone's not right, everything else was going to be messed up. And so that's what this quote from Psalm 18 is. 118 is saying that Jesus is claiming to be that cornerstone. He is the foundation of your life. I mean, if you move away from the cornerstone, you can just expect like at some point your life is going to be able to begin to crumble. It's not going to have a solid foundation. That's what he's saying to the church. That's what he's saying to the believer. Foundational to the church is nothing less than Jesus Christ. Your life, Union Church, solely rests on this cornerstone. Anything else, it will crumble. So think for a moment, what foundation are you building your life upon? Is it relationships? Is it money? Is it your career? Is it your hobbies? What is the foundation upon which you are building your life? Because if you find that you're building your life upon a foundation that is not Jesus Christ, it will lead to frustration. It will lead to failure. Your life will crumble in upon itself. So, a few applications here about building our lives upon this foundation, upon the cornerstone. Um, the first is this. The metaphor of a vineyard for God's people means that it is organic. It is organic. He's implying that God expects fruit from His church. We are supposed to be a vineyard that is growing and that is thriving. God waters us. God fertilizes us with His grace. And then He expects fruit and growth from us as a church. And so that's the challenge. It's both, it's both individual and collective for us, right? How are we bearing fruit? How are we bearing fruit? You know, consider what that might mean. We're supposed to be a people that are praying. We're supposed to be a people that are worshiping. We are supposed to be a people who give forbearance to one another and are forgiving to one another. We're supposed to be a people who are in relationship with one another. But no, but no matter what, God expects from His vineyard of Union Church, He expects organic growth. Second, you see here, I mean, we've been over this, the, the tenants or the religious leaders. Um, but really, one thing to realize in this is that for all of us, for every single one of us, the vineyard is not our own. The vineyard is not our own. God is the owner of this church. God is the owner of this building. God is the owner 
of every single one of us here today. This vineyard, this church, it belongs to God. So when you serve, I mean, when you serve, think about your relationship, your relationship to the Lord, right? Sometimes we tend to want to make our own little kingdoms and our own power, our own status, our own control. But think about your relationship to the Lord, right? It's not about you. This vineyard is not yours. It is God's. I want to close with this. Some of you might remember the old, there was an old MasterCard you know, like MasterCard credit card, old MasterCard advertising campaign. Some of y'all might remember it's called Priceless. Some of y'all remember that? I don't think it's, I don't think it's a thing anymore. But, um, you know, they'd have these television commercials and it would say like, you know, be like, well, such and such costs uh, this, this much, $5, such and such costs that much, $10. This other thing costs so much. And then like the last thing would be like, but this thing is priceless, right? Like, you can like charge it on your MasterCard credit card too, which isn't the point. But, but um, you know, I was looking at some of those old ads and there was one of them. I thought it was pretty good. It's this, um, the, the plot line is that this father is bringing his young son to a baseball game, you know, like a professional baseball game at the big, you know, the big baseball stadium, the lights, the green field. I mean, like really really cool. Father's bringing his son to a baseball game and like in the ad, you know, puts this on the screen and there's a voiceover saying this. It's like two tickets to a baseball game, $47. Two hot dogs, two popcorns, two sodas, $27. I mean, it'd probably be like $127 today, but anyway, $27. One autographed baseball, $50. And then the last part, you know, kind of the catch of it is this. It says, real conversation with your 11-year-old son. Priceless. Priceless, right? And then the caption is MasterCard, you know. And if you ever notice in that ad campaign, like every, whatever, you know, whatever like the little theme of the ad was, like it was always, I mean, the, the thing that was priceless was always like a relational thing, right? Like a, a husband and his wife, a boyfriend and girlfriend, father and son. Like it was always this precious moment in relationship. Ah, priceless. I said at the beginning of this message that this parable is really about relationships. The relationship with Jesus Christ as your foundation, your relationship with God. And the reality and the irony of this is that the most important relationship of your life, your relationship with Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, it is not priceless. It came with a very distinct and clear price. You are not your own. You were bought with the price, with the blood of Jesus. Life for life. Blood for blood. God sent His beloved Son continually pursuing after you in love so that you could be bought with a price. So that you could be brought into a reconciled relationship with the Lord, to worship Him. And in His vineyard to grow.